I'll start us off by reading in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and to keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, be with us as we read from your word today. Uh, Father, you say in these verses that blessed are those who hear these words. So I simply ask that you would bless us this morning uh, as we read the book of Revelation. I pray that we would keep these words. Um, Father, help us to learn and know more about you and to obey. Father, help us to do that. And Father, help us leave uh, this morning's sermon challenged and encouraged and inspired and equipped uh, to better glorify you, to be more sure than we ever have been before of your power and your glory and your love for us. Father, your son, Jesus Christ's death on the cross expresses that so clearly. And thank you for the reminder of communion of his broken body and shed blood. Thank you that we can call you father. Thank you that we are your children. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for this morning. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation has fascinated, confused, frustrated, challenged, and comforted its readers from the day it was written some 2,000 years ago. Faithful pastors, brilliant theologians, educated historians, and some less than reliable religious hucksters have all come up with some very interesting ways of reading this book. Some of those interpretations have been creative, some have been helpful, some maybe more than others, and then some interpretations have just been downright weird. But in the beginning of the book, before you get to many of the breathtaking, bizarre, frightening, and hotly debated signs and symbols, before you get to that stuff, you read about seven churches. And specifically, you read what Jesus himself has to say to these churches. So in this sermon series, we're going to read about each of them. What does Jesus say to these churches? Why does he say it? And how might our church be similar or different from these seven? And what might Jesus say to us? So open up to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take one home if you don't own one. But before we open the book of Revelation, it's good to get a lay of the land. Before we start reading, it's helpful to learn a bit about the background of this book. Now, we already learned something about the book of Revelation simply by reading the title, the word Revelation. The main purpose of the book is that God is revealing something to the people who received it. And while we may not be the original audience of Revelation, we believe that God still uses his word to reveal something to churches and Christians today. But then on top of that, we know from verse 3 that this book contains prophecy. Now, when we hear the word prophecy, 
our minds often jump to a prediction of the future. We think of Miss Cleo and crystal, crystal balls. Now, predicting the future is certainly a part of prophecy. Verse 1 says this revelation is about the things that must soon take place. But telling the future is not all that prophecy is meant to do. Prophecy is also meant to teach us, to encourage us, and to call us to faith and repentance. And then in those opening verses, we see that we're reading a book of commands. Verse 3 also said that blessed are those who hear, and blessed are those who keep what is written in this book. In other words, there is teaching in the book of Revelation that Christians are called to obey in our everyday lives. But as we try to get a better feel for what exactly we're reading, let's pick up in verse 4. We read there. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, And has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Theatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You would too if you saw that. But he laid his right hand on me, saying... Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but let's take it apart bit by bit, starting with the question, who wrote this? Well, the answer is John. 
Some argue about which John this was. There's more than one person who may have gone by the name John in New Testament times. But there's plenty of reason to hold to the traditional stance that the John of Revelation is the same John who was one of Jesus's original 12 disciples. The John who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote Revelation. And according to John, he's writing from Patmos, a tiny island in the Aegean Sea, southwest of the seven churches who will receive this letter. John claims that he was sent to that island against his will on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, it's not recorded anywhere in scripture, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. But legend says that Roman authorities got so tired of John's preaching that they tried to execute him multiple times. But somehow, miraculously, the guy just wouldn't die. They put him in boiling oil and he came up and his skin looked better than it did before. They tried all kinds of different things and John just wouldn't go away. So they eventually settled on sending him away to Patmos. Now, who's receiving this letter? Well, we saw the seven churches listed. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, and Laodicea. Those cities were some of the most influential cities in the entire region. And it's also worth noting that John refers to them as partners in the tribulation. In other words, we learn that these churches are experiencing some of the same opposition that got John sent to Patmos to begin with. They're facing persecution, too. But why is John writing this? Well, if nothing else, it's because God told him to. He was given explicit instructions to write down what he's about to see. John is the messenger to these churches, relaying a message directly from Christ himself. But then on top of that, after seeing what he just saw, how could John not write about it? The vision that we read about in verses 12 through 20 is nothing short of awesome. This picture of Christ with white hair and flaming eyes and a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That ranks right up there with the visions of God that we read about in the Old Testament. Books like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. It's so amazing that John falls down as though dead. And it's safe to say that if you saw the same glorious vision of God that John saw, you'd probably write too. In fact, you would be dying to tell people about it, even if they might think you're crazy. So Revelation is a complex book, but through it, God is going to reveal something to his people through John. It comes from the island of Patmos to seven suffering churches in Asia, but it has something to say to our church, too. And then John's not just making this up out of thin air. It's a message God specifically instructed him to share. But what exactly does God have to say to these seven churches? What is so urgent that God would interrupt John's Sunday prayer? What's so important that he allows John to have this incredible vision of Jesus? And why is it so crucial that John write down every single thing he sees and make sure that these Christians know about it? Well, let's start with the first church, the church in Ephesus. 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Of the seven cities receiving this letter, Ephesus is likely the largest. Some estimate that it would have been around 250,000 people at the time. It was a major center of commerce and religion, especially pagan religion. There were numerous temples in that city, many dedicated to worship of the Roman Empire. The Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was in Ephesus as well. And if you want to see just how seriously the Ephesians took their religion, look at Acts chapter 19. In that passage, a crowd of Ephesians chants, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours straight. These are very religious people. Now, there are four main parts to the verses that we just read, verses 1 through 7. Part 1 is the commendation, what the church in Ephesus has done well. Part 2 is the condemnation, what the church in Ephesus has done poorly. Part 3 is the call to repentance. What Christ calls the church in Ephesus to change. And then fourth is the promised reward. What these Christians have to look forward to. So let's start with the commendation. You see that in verses 2 and 3 and in verse 6 as well. Jesus commends the Ephesian church for their toil, their patient endurance, for bearing up for his name's sake, and for not growing weary. In other words, the Ephesian Christians have stood strong in the face of persecution. They haven't allowed the threats, the intimidation, and mistreatment at the hands of non-believers sway them from their dedication to Christ. Their faithfulness has been tested and proven over the long haul. But then on top of that, they're also commended for refusing to condone evil and refusing to be misled by false teachers. Namely, the Nicolaitans. We'll read more about them in a couple weeks. The Ephesians are pursuing holiness, and they are fleeing sin. They know the truth, they teach it consistently, and they defend it rigorously. They recognize error and refuse to be taken in by it. They're dedicated to orthodoxy, to right teaching. They've refused to abandon or compromise sound doctrine, even when it's made their lives harder. These are all really good things. These are all commendable things. But then you read verse 4. 
And that's the condemnation. Jesus says that they have abandoned the love they had at first. They've abandoned the love they had at first. That sounds vague, doesn't it? What love is Jesus talking about? And why would they have abandoned it? Well, perhaps the persecution that they've faced, the day-in, day-out pressure and hardship of being a Christian in their time, maybe that's left them just a little bit bitter, jaded, and hardened. Maybe they found themselves less loving toward the God who would allow them to face these troubles, less loving toward the enemies who give them so much grief, and even less loving to each other along the way. Or maybe it's not the persecution. Maybe it's just the passage of time since they first believed that has caused their love to fade. The initial love of when they were first saved has weakened. Like an old romance, the flame has burned out, lost its heat, and gone cold. Now, have you ever experienced that? Maybe when you first became a believer in Christ... The love that you had for God, the love you had for the church, the love you had for Christ, the love that you had for your neighbor and your enemy and your brothers and sisters in Christ, that love burned hot. And you shared that love with anyone who came into your path when you first believed. But then all of a sudden life got hard. And you realize that being a Christian isn't exactly a cakewalk all the time. And your love kind of started to go dark. Or maybe time passed. It wasn't that hard to be a Christian, but maybe life just got a little bit boring. Like that old romance, your love for Christ slowly but surely got cold. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe you have. You know, the church in Ephesus did a lot of important things really well, but they failed in the way of love. In John 17, just before his crucifixion, Jesus prays for his 12 disciples and he prays for those who will come after them. And Jesus prays that his disciples would do the things the church in Ephesus did well. He prays that they would know the truth. They would believe the truth. They would be sanctified in truth. Truth, 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 truth in that John 17 prayer. But then Jesus also prays that his disciples would grow in love. We read in John chapter 17, verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. In John chapter 13, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he says, May you love one another, that the world may know that you are my disciples. In 1 John, we read that if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you are a liar. Standing firm in the face of persecution is admirable. Dedication to holiness and truth and sound doctrine absolutely matters. And it really is commendable when a church excels at recognizing good teaching and rejecting bad teaching. But in our passionate and strong desire for truth, we need to be careful not to forget about love. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul lists some impressive spiritual gifts. 
But then in the very next few verses, he refers to a still more excellent way. That's in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. While the Corinthians thought that speaking in tongues was so impressive and so spiritual, Paul says that if you're doing those things without love, you're just making a racket. If you have prophetic powers and unmatched understanding and robust faith, but you don't have love, you are nothing. You can even give away your very life for the sake of your faith, but if you don't have love, you gain nothing. And in the same way, we can hold all the right beliefs, articulate all the right doctrines, reject all the false teachings, and avoid all kinds of evil. But if we don't have love, then we are nothing. If all we have is right teaching, We can make a lot of noise, but only when we pair it with love do we actually make music. One commentator put it this way. Without love, the congregation ceases to be a church. In other words, if you don't have love, you're not a church, you're just a crowd. If you want to be a church, you have to have love. A lampstand's purpose is to uphold and dispense light. But without the motivation of true love, it fails in its purpose. Therefore, it no longer has a right to exist. Love is not just one of many things that we do in the church. It is a core part of who we are. And if we are not loving God, and if we are not loving each other, if we aren't loving our neighbors and aren't loving our enemies, we simply can't be called a church anymore. Even if we have all the doctrines right, even if we believe all the right things and teach all the right things, we can't forget about love. And that's why Jesus issues the church of Ephesus a call to repentance in verse 5. He graciously brings this sin to their attention. He reveals it to them in order that they might repent. Jesus encourages and commends them for what they've done well. He holds that up as a positive example. But he also reminds them that they have neglected love. And they must repent. And it's by calling them to repentance that Jesus reassures them of their promised reward. We saw that in verse 7. He reminds them of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Off limits since the sin of Adam and Eve. And he promises that those who repent, those who recognize him, those who believe in him, those who follow him, those who love him, those people will conquer. They will eat from the tree of life. They will have the reward of seeing God. They will have the joy of seeing the beauty and power and glory that John writes about. And in fact, they won't just get to see it. They'll get to live in it in eternity. Now, as we begin to wrap up, we ask the question that we'll ask for each of the next six weeks. 
how is our church and how are we as individuals similar to the church and similar to the Christians in Ephesus? What do we learn about ourselves when we read about them? The things that they did well, their faithfulness in the face of persecution, their dedication to holiness, their embrace of good teaching and rejection of bad teaching. Do we do those things well or do we do those things poorly? If Jesus himself wrote a letter directly to Prairie View Christian Church, 8350 East 141st Street, Fishers, Indiana, 46038, not to be confused with Christ Community Church on 131st Street. If he wrote that letter to this church, would we be commended in the same way that the church in Ephesus was commended? Or would we be found wanting? And would we be called to repent? What the Ephesians did poorly, love. What about that? Do we do that well? Or do we lack it? Are we as a church and are we as individual believers marked by love for God? Are we marked by love for our neighbors and our enemies, love for each other? Would we be commended for our love or would we be called to repent for our lack of love? Have we somehow lost the love that we had when we first believed? Whether it's through the challenges of the Christian life or it's simply burned out through the lulls of everyday existence. And if we have lost that love, how do we get it back? If our church or we as individuals are lacking in the areas mentioned today, faithfulness, holiness, sound teaching, love, we are given the opportunity to repent Maybe that's the way the book of Revelation is blessing us this morning, that it's calling us to repent. And we can trust that God is gracious and faithful to grow us in these areas. And we can leave here reassured of our promised reward in Christ. At this very moment, we can repent and ask God to reignite and feed the love that we had at first that maybe has gone cold. And as a result... May we be numbered among those who conquer. May we be numbered among those who look forward to eating from the tree of life in the presence of God. Now, before you leave thinking that this whole sermon series will be about grading our church, focusing all of our attention on what we do well and what we do poorly and what needs to be different and how we need to repent. Look back at chapter one. There's a reason that we read that. In chapter 1, Jesus is described as faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of kings, the one who loves us and freed us by his blood, made us a kingdom, made us priests to God, the one who has dominion forever and ever, the one who will return as judge, Alpha and Omega, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We're talking about the one whose appearance made John fall down like a dead man. But then Christ lifted him up and told him not to fear. He's the one who died and is now alive forevermore and has the keys of death and Hades. That Jesus, in all of his power and beauty and glory, he commends us where we've done well. And he graciously calls us to repentance where we failed. That Jesus reassures us of our eternal reward. 
And that Jesus, the one we read about in Revelation 1, that Jesus is on our side. That Jesus is on your side. He died on the cross for you. He died on the cross for this church. And those who believe in him will conquer. Those who believe in him look forward to eating from the tree of life. That is good news for the seven churches in Revelation. It's good news for the believers in Ephesus. And it's good news for our church as well. It's good news for every single individual believer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we've had together to open your word. Father, thank you for the book of Revelation. I pray that this morning and every morning in the sermon series that we would be blessed by reading these words. Father, I pray that you would show us ways that we've done ministry well. Show us the things that we've done rightly. And Father, I pray that we would continue to do those things rightly with your power and with your grace. But Father, also we ask that you show us the things that we haven't done well. Father, show us ways that we can grow. Show us ways that we need to learn. Show us sins that we need to repent of. Show us works that you expect of us that we aren't producing. And as Kyle said in the communion meditation, we we know that you're faithful to produce those fruits and produce those works within us. Father, thank you that even though we are imperfect, even though our church is imperfect, you come to us, you love us, you lift us up, you tell us not to fear. Father, we thank you that you walk amongst the churches, as we read about in chapter 2, that you walk with us through the ups and downs of ministry and life and following your Son. And so, Father, I pray that you would lift us up, bring us to repentance, Bring us to faith. Bring us to obedience where we might be lacking it. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your goodness and your truth. And Father, teach us and help us and remind us to love. That the love of Christ may be in us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.